you are listening to The Janine Garner Show. Janine is a leading expert on leadership and driving influence through networking and collaboration. Passionate about bringing brilliant people together to achieve remarkable results. Join Janine Garner as she shares insights, interviews and conversations and let's together make the remarkable happen. So welcome to the latest episode of Unleashing Brilliance. I am so excited today. As my guest today, I have the fabulous Melinda Cruz. What an inspiring woman Melinda is. She is the founder and non-exec director of Miracle Babies Foundation, which is Australia's leading organization that supports premature and sick newborns, their families, and the hospitals caring for them. The foundation itself actually provides the link between health professionals and families and is the peak consumer body for neonatal research. The incredible difference that this woman has made to thousands, along with her impact as a successful entrepreneur, has seen her win numerous awards, including the 2011 EY Social Entrepreneur of the Year, and she is a regular guest on radio, TV, and a speaker around the world. She was inducted into the 2013 Australian Business Women's Hall of Fame and was a 2015 New South Wales Women of the Year Premier's Award finalist. She's pretty awesome. But what is even more awesome about her is she's a trusted expert to medical professionals. Um, she's been awarded the title of Honorary Research Associate by the University of Sydney. She travels around the world providing thinking and insight and support to change the world of um, medical support for premature and sick newborns. She's also a published author, a speaker, a social entrepreneur. Um, she's pretty incredible. And she's run the New York Marathon, as well as raising an awesome family of incredible men. Welcome to the podcast, Melinda. It's so awesome to have you here. How are you? Have you got any time to yourself? Great. <laughs> That was an amazing intro. That's all down to you. It's funny how you don't um, often get to hear yourself like that. Do you know what I mean? I know. That's amazing. Thank you. You listen to it, don't you? Go, that's is that me? Did I really do all that? Yeah. Because you really do, you get caught caught in the everyday. So, yeah, no, that was amazing. Thank you. You do get caught in the everyday, and that's it's quite an interesting point to raise immediately, isn't it, about how important mm-hmm. it is to sometimes just stop and take a moment to acknowledge the work that you're doing and the impact that you are having. Um, do you often get time to stop? Yeah. Um. Probably not as much as you'd want to, but I'm having fun. So I don't think I necessarily need to, if that kind of makes sense. Um, Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I was having fun. Talk to me about what having fun is. So I guess at the moment, um, did you want to go into a little bit of the background of Miracle Babies? Talk to me a little bit about... What it, yeah, how you ended up here? Where did this all start? Yeah. So, if my background is actually, and a lot of people probably don't know this, is that I actually have a science degree in genetics. Um, so, when I finished, you know, did really well at school, went to uni, got my degree, and then started working in a lab. And I really thought that that's what my journey was. Um, probably halfway through high school. 
well, up until, yeah, mid-high school, I always thought I wanted to do business and commerce and that kind of feel. And then, you know, something flipped and I wanted to do science and I thought I was going to be a scientist. So I was definitely on that journey kind of in my own little bubble working in a lab. And then it was really the journey to have my children. You said I'm raising men. I have three absolute amazing, beautiful boys who really their births just changed the whole agenda of my life. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's any other way to explain it. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit more. Share how they changed your life because a lot of parents go, yeah, I had kids that changed my life, but for you it really was a watershed moment that set you off on another course, wasn't it? Yeah, so they were all born premature. Um, my first son, Elijah, he was born at 34 weeks after a five-week um, hospital stay on bed rest. And, you know, I, I have a condition, so we were kind of given a little bit of the heads up that we would probably have a premature baby. Um, and, you know, it was quite heartbreaking and um, a very emotional for us to, you know, have to leave him behind at the hospital and go home without a baby even though he was doing well emotionally it was a really tough time with the second pregnancy I kind of had false hope that I would just go a little bit further and I thought my body knows what it's doing my uterus is a little bit stretched um, we'll be okay and it just didn't happen that way at 20 26 weeks or just over 26 weeks I started to have contractions went into hospital hospital and had him four days later and, and you know our whole world at that time just turned upside down he was resuscitated when he was born spent nine or uh, 16 days on life support and then a total of nine weeks in hospital and it was just a, a completely different world for us emotionally I struggled a lot um, I felt obviously you know I had fear and worry about losing him I had so much guilt in terms of you know, me having done that to him, um, I was heartbroken that I went through it twice. I had to go home two times without a baby. Um, it was just a really, really hard time. And like I said, he spent nine weeks in hospital and I remember taking him home at 35 weeks and there was a point where he was sitting in my lap and I was thinking, you know, you should still be inside me for another five weeks. This is crazy that I've got you home. Um, um, you know, what do we do now? And we know that with premature babies, particularly so early, there is a risk of long-term difficulties um, and they don't always have the best outcome. So we knew that, you know, there may be issues with his eyes, his hearing, his lungs, um, you know, brain development, uh, socialising, motor skills, um, gut development, a whole range of things that we knew just because we were discharged it wasn't over yet. Mm. And so we were part of a support group at the hospital, but after 12 months that um, that support group finished and I remember thinking, what do we do now? You know, he's not walking, he's not talking, we're not on full solids yet, he's still a baby and we're out in this world. So that was, I guess, the real thing for me is like how do I stay connected, one, into the health system, but two, with other parents? I have big, beautiful Italian family around me, lots of people around me, but first person to have premies. And I can tell you it's such a different experience. You might not be alone, but it's a lonely time. Mm. And um, so, yeah, so I approached the hospital. There was nothing, nowhere for me to go. There was no Facebook at the time, which is it's almost hard to think of a 
time without Facebook um, and being able to connect to people. But I found a, a support group that was operating in the UK from the 70s and in the US from the 50s. So here we are in Australia in like 2005 and there is no national charity foundation or organisation for parents that have had premature sick babies. So didn't kind of set out to change the world. Um, I, you know, gathered some papers and went to the head of the unit where the, uh, my boys were born and just thought I'd start just a local group at that one hospital. Mm. Um, yeah, so that, that was kind of the beginning. <laughs> and then, it, yeah, it exploded. Before we, uh, we talk about how it's exploded, I mean, there is something mm-hmm. pretty amazing about what you did at that moment in time in your life when you were a... Uh, mother of a second premature baby and you went out to create something what was it that drove you do you think because you could you could just have sat at home and just tapped into whatever resources were available or focused on yourself and your child but you went out there for a reason what was it that drove you I often kind of think that and I think sometimes it's you, but it's like something bigger than you. I can't explain it. I, I I know for myself, and I think it was twofold. I was looking for more for me. I know that I needed more support at the time, but I knew hands down that if I was feeling the same way, there must have been other mums and other families that felt it too. Um, so, I, and I remember being really nervous about the idea that I didn't even, I was invited to speak to the exec committee, but I didn't. I actually gave it to um, the PA of the doctor and I said to him, uh, I said to her, I, I won't come, but here's all the details. Like, let me know what they say. I <laughs> think I was quite shy. Mm. Um, like I said, completely different person. My, my job when I worked in a lab, I had, you know, five or six people really around me, no um, contact with public, no customer service, like that kind of thing, and it suited me well. I was quite quite shy. But I think I think it was more just the knowing that there needed to be more. Mm. And the other thing was when we walked out of the hospital with Dylan, I remember saying to his dad, we would not have him without this care. And I just wished in that moment that we had money. I said, you know, if we had a million dollars, I would donate a million dollars to this hospital because I know hands down with both my boys, we would never have had them if that care wasn't available. And I know that even more so now, you know, with Miracle Babies, that our stats in Australia are phenomenal compared to some parts in the world. Mm. Um, So I think it was wanting to give back and not knowing how to do that um because I was so grateful and then yeah just understanding the need um I don't know you know I've spoken to doctors around the world I was actually in a conference um a couple of years ago in Italy and you know from all the work that we've we've done and I know we'll get into that but um he said to me you know every year thousands of babies are born there's thousands of parents and he said I've waited my whole career for someone like you and um yeah, I don't know what that is, <laughs> but um, it really hit me when he said it. It was amazing. How did, how did that make you feel, someone turning to you and saying, I've waited all my career for someone like you? Um, I remember being actually quite overwhelmed by the statement, but at the same time, um, I don't know, like a sense of pride, but just like when you were reading out that, that intro, 
you just you, you keep going day after day and you don't realize that all the little things that you do every day layer upon themselves and build up to something really big like it's not until you step back and say wow look what we've done mm. um because when you're in it you're just doing it but I just I remember looking at him and just I don't know like my heart just filled because I I just thought we're all in this together and I think one of the biggest things I've been exposed to on this side of you know working with the foundation is it's not often that parents or the general public get to be part of the insider of medical conferences and workshops and things like that and just seeing their passion and their passion is for our families and our babies mm. um, and their dedication and I just think they're all here working so hard for our outcomes like it, it's it's quite an overwhelming situation which started with your idea so can you share what that original little idea that you had that need that you had has now become as Miracle Babies well what have what has Miracle Babies been able to achieve and what does it look like now? Yeah, so I, I think for me the major need was um, probably being connected to other families. I, I think peer-to-peer -peer support, particularly in health, is so um, underestimated. Um, I just think it's probably one of the most valuable ways that we can make an impact. I remember a doctor saying to me, you know, we can do what we do very well medically and physically but if we're not looking after the emotional well-being of the families that we're sending these babies home to we're only doing half our job and the biggest way to make that impact is peer-to-peer -peer support so that was what was really important to me and it was amazing that when I finally started um, meeting other parents and other mums we all had that common need I remember two weeks before Dylan was discharged, one of the doctors was talking to me about his lungs and, you know, what to expect once we got home. And one of my questions at that time was, can I speak to a mum who's got a 27-weeker that's two now or five or, you know, at school so that we can have some idea of what we're in for and there was just not, that option just did not exist. Yeah. So meeting those other mums, that was something that was really important to us. So we wanted to develop a program where, there was a way for parents that were still in the unit to connect to each other while they're both going through the journey, but that past parents could come back and actually help mentor or, you know, support through the journey um, current families. And that was probably one of the biggest things that we wanted to do. And the second thing was the discharge program that finished at 12 months. We felt that needed to be extended. So the program at the hospital where, where we had our sons, um, that program was for babies under 29 weeks and under 1,500 grams. So if your baby was older than that or bigger than that, they weren't actually invited. You were actually just getting discharged, which was shocking to me. I don't understand how there was no support. Um, so we were able to open that to any baby that spent any time in a hospital, um, regardless of weight and week of birth and we extended it to six years old so now we look after or we support families when they, until their babies are ready for school and in all honesty we stay with them for as long as they need to through resources and online communities um, so I think that was the biggest thing for us one of the things that we needed to overcome was it was a new situation for the hospital to see past uh, patients in an intensive care situation 
situation come and have direct contact with patients. It's not typically how volunteers worked in a hospital. Um, so it took about 18 months for us. We had the grant light but we had a lot of red tape to get through and you know I'm, I'm so proud of the journey of the hospital embracing the idea as much as the families that were keen um, after discharge to be part of it because we did it right we did it properly and it's so successful mm. um, yeah so we developed what we call a nurture program which is a complete parent support program from their time in hospital um, from a threatened pregnancy time in hospital and then their journey home so it includes all the face-to-face and hospital contact but also a 24-hour family line Um, we have resources we wrote a book for the journey within the NICU and all of our online community now that we you know once Facebook and and all of the social media came on board that's made a huge difference of being able to connect parents Um, so I guess that's one of the really big sides of what we do and then to I guess kind of um, complement that is the work that we do as a parent voice and a consumer voice whether that's in research um, at medical conferences in services you know we're constantly asked to talk um, you know to put have input on hospital brochures and hospital design Um, we really have become a part of the health system like I think it's absolutely amazing I've used the term a couple of times, like we're we're in the veins now (laughs) Um, as parents that can help make a difference for future families. So it's it's been incredible. How many, if you had to put a number to it, how many people, families, children do you think Miracle Babies has had chance to support? So every year in Australia, and I think this is something that surprises a lot of people, is about 48,000 babies are born premature or sick. Um, It's such an alarming amount. I remember when we went national, I kind of sunk on the floor and thought, how do we do this? Um, And we are inside and have some kind of touch point within every neonatal intensive care unit in the country. There's 23 of them. So at some stage every single parent, every family will have some kind of knowledge of us. Um, And like I said, it can be through any, whether it's through contact face-to-face over the phone or online. Our online community with Facebook is, I think there's nearly 57,000 likes on Facebook. So and that's the biggest online community in Australia for, for neonatal families. So I'd like to think that, you know, nearly all of those families, even if they don't use our services, they're aware of us. And that was the thing that was really important for, for me. I, I, you know, if you look at something, I remember growing up and um, having family members that had cancer and, you know, you, you always knew where to go because there was an awareness Um, of where you could get support, that's what we want for families, that even if they don't feel that they need us, that they're aware that the support exists. And I think we do a really good job of that. And what do you see as being the biggest need from here? What what, um, changes are happening? What impact um, or what what changes need to happen in in this space of neonatal um, support, research, et cetera? What's the biggest challenge? Um, I think the biggest challenge is probably resourcing. Um, You know, we a a couple of years ago we were invited to be part of an international study between Australia, New Zealand and Canada 
um, called FICARE, which stands for Family Integrated Care. And it was really looking at ways that families become more involved in the care of their babies. I know when my boys were born, it was a little bit more of a a kind of hands-off situation where there wasn't really much as a parent that you could do for your baby. Um, But now they're trying to flip that where the parents become a lot more involved, um, hold the baby a lot more, be involved in cares and things like that. And that was a global study that, you know, really proved that babies that have more interaction with their parents in an intensive care situation actually do a lot better. Mm. Um, Their breathing, their temperature, their heart rates are more stabilised, less likely chances of of infection. They spend less time in hospital, bonding's better, Um, you know, feeding is a lot better, mums express, uh, get better milk supply. So, Having having said that, it's how do we then have infrastructure to allow that? A lot of our hospitals aren't built for parents to actually stay alongside their babies. Um, you know, new hospitals around the world, you know, if you look at Sweden and other countries where they're doing that so well, I would hope eventually in Australia with new hospital designs, parents wouldn't have to leave their babies um, in this kind of situation where, and it's quite interesting actually, because if your baby, if your child is in um, a paediatric ward, you're almost looked um, like there's kind of like a bad vibe if a parent leaves a child in peds, but in a baby situation, parents can't stay. Like it's really, it's, it's kind of like an odd situation where, the expectation would be that your baby's been delivered, it's going to grow up here, but you go home. Um, so I think that's going to make a huge difference when infrastructure can kind of catch up with that. What's what's the key thing you're working on now? What's what's getting you out of bed every day in this space? What's what's the passion project that, at the moment? Um, so after 13 years, I stepped away from the CEO position. Um, kind of transitioned out of that. I still sit on the board of the foundation. That was really important to me. Um, and one of the reasons I, I wanted to do that as well was I really didn't want um, Miracle Babies to be like the Melinda Cruz show. I It was so important to me for sustainability that it exists way beyond um, me being here. And yeah, so that was really important to me. So it was a discussion that we had around the 10 years and then took another three years <laughs> to get on board and feel comfortable um, with kind of stepping aside from that. But I'm still involved every day. We're, we're actually in the middle of our National Awareness Month and I don't think I've not had a day where I'm not doing something miracle babies related. Um, for me personally, I'm in the process of actually writing the book of, of what's happened over the 13 years and um, not only, I guess, what the foundation does, but just the building of it behind it, like what it took to go from, you know, one hospital to to spread it across the state, then go national and then go global. Um, you know, that that's a big thing for me. And there's a lot of a reflection in that and then I really I, I really hope that people learning the story not only want to I guess support the work that we do but that it inspires them to to do whatever it is that they want to do for themselves yeah. I think when I see that people hearing my story does that that's where I'm at home like I just think that's the most amazing thing to me um mm-hmm. and 
as much it, it's almost as worth every baby that we save or every family that we help um yeah just being able to do that for people is just as amazing to me you know I as I'm getting um I'm going to say older I don't want to say that Janine <laughs> um but yeah just understanding that more and understanding what that means to people um yeah that's been really important for me what has this last 13 years the journey of miracle babies done for you who has what have you learned about yourself during this process um I've definitely come out of my shell mm-hmm. like um like I was saying before you know from I guess choosing a job where I, I wouldn't have like be on a stage kind of thing um to doing that I've learnt um the power of someone's story and how sharing that story can not only help you heal or or make a difference in your life but it does make a difference to other people as well um and probably the power of you know just keep going and you know, people always ask, you know, kind of what's your motto or what, what's your, what mantra, you know, do you live by? And I remember reading early on, I think Neil Donald Walsh in one of his um, Conversations with God books, he actually says, you know, if you want to know if something's right and true for you, look to how you feel, which I guess is kind of in a nutshell of saying, like, trust your gut. Um, but really taking that time to to know and centre yourself and know what that is and, it's been a personal journey for me working that out. Um, I know there's so many things along the way that might have felt a bit scary or, you know, people would advise you against it, but then there's just something inside you telling you, no, no, I want to give this a go or I want to try it. Um, and I think I, I've shared the story with you about how we got our chairman on board and, you know, being told that we weren't ready, we weren't big enough, that I would embarrass myself, I would embarrass him by asking. Um, but, you know, something inside, if, if you don't ask, you don't get. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so I think for me personally there's definitely been a lot of growth. Um, just understanding that, you know, one person when you share your vision and you've got other people that come on board and share that vision too, that you can you can absolutely make a huge difference mm, it's a and not being afraid of that. Uh, music to my ears, you know, we, <laughs> we can't be successful alone. And no. um, you obviously started the journey that has become the phenomena and the legacy that you've created that is Miracle Baby. But who's helped you along the way? Can you talk a little bit, share with our audience a bit about that power of the collective around you and that shared vision and who's helped you? Yeah, um, it's interesting that you say that about not doing it alone because sometimes you feel like you need to and it's just, I think it's the hard way to do it and it's sometimes it would be impossible. I know for Miracle Babies the way it is today um, it's definitely, you know, not my doing. It's the fact that I did share um, my feelings, did share my vision for the organisation and these absolutely amazing women along the way just found that that vision and grabbed it and made it their own and, and came across the journey. For me, I know that, and I think people say this all the time, that you should surround yourself with people that are better than you. <laughs> um, I've definitely done that. And I think one of the biggest things for us 
was the fact that we didn't start this organisation separate to the health system, even though that was the system that we wanted to make an impact. Um, the fact that the first person I approached was the hospital and I got a yes from them meant that we were on this journey together the whole time. So I could never have sat outside of it and thought, this is what Miracle Babies is going to do. Um, it really kind of just grew on its own. So, and that was you know, it's it's been like this living organism that everybody's had a say in, in what it means to them and what it needs to do and being able to drive that um, and not knowing, you know, where I wanted to go or what the why was but not being so concerned with the how and it's just honestly turned out to so much more than I could have ever imagined. Um one of the other things I do want to bring up, um, which I think is really important, is that um, quite a number of years ago when we were first going national, about a year after we went national, um, we knew the programs were getting a lot of traction and the awareness just kind of exploded. But the funding didn't at the same time, like it couldn't, like we just couldn't play catch up. And there was almost a moment where I think we had about three months left in the bank um, to be operating unless something kind of major happened. And, you know, just wearing the gravity of that, of, of having it um, get so bad and, and, you know, looking at, staring it in a face that it might not exist. And I remember once coming from a board meeting, it was probably the, fir the first and only board meeting in my entire life that I've ever cried in, um, and coming back to the office and having to face my team. And it was really probably the first time that I shared with them where we were at because I'm always so positive, always looking forward, always everything's wonderful. And it was my national event manager who pulled me aside and said, you know, the problem with you is that when things are going great, it's all about the team. We all celebrate it. You always make it always about us and how great we're all doing. She said, when things aren't going well, you don't share it. You make it all about you. You wear it all and that's not fair. It's not fair to do that because it should be about all of us in exact, in both situations. And, you know, when I finally got, um, I guess, the courage to just lay it all on the table and say, this is where we're at and let everybody own it, it completely flipped. I and think, uh, that's a huge learning for me, huge, I think because I wanted to fix it for everybody else. And I think that's probably a learning for many of our listeners. It's, it's this vulnerability piece of the truth and sharing honestly what is happening. Do you, I know I see it in my world where a lot of leaders will be outwardly one person, but inwardly um, they're scared, they're frightened, they're confused. Do you mm -hmm. see that in yeah. your circles of people that you, you work with or advise that there's this opportunity that exists with people becoming much more honest and truthful about what's going on to create team momentum towards change? Yeah, and I think, I mean, you still have to kind of, um, I guess, balance that. I don't know... Um, how much I mean I might be different now if I was in the same situation but I don't know how much I would have been confident you know to publicly I guess share it but within the team who are all on the same train and the same journey it almost when I think about it now it's like why wouldn't I like why would I think that I would have to um kind of hide that and wear that and you know lose so much sleep over it when 
sharing it with them actually empowered everybody. Like it was just there is no way on my own I could have fixed it. It was a team effort that fixed it. And, again, it was more than I could, like it was better than I could have ever imagined. Um, But I I do, I think as leaders, I I think it's that fear of failure and, and fear of people catching you out that you're failing if that kind of makes sense like it's um yeah I don't know like I don't know why we're kind of scared to express that and let people in um but I can tell you that the moment that I released it was a moment it all changed um I wish you'd had that conversation with me earlier (laughs) I would have been better (laughs) But it's really stuck out with me because I don't think we do it enough. No, we don't. So talk to me about what unleashing brilliance means to you. I love your comment at the beginning of this conversation where you shared, gosh, we we don't take a moment to actually think about what we've we've achieved. Um, what What in your mind is unleashing brilliance? What do you see that you wish people would do more of to unleash whatever their brilliance is for the planet? Yeah, I think um, I don't know if people take enough time to think about what it is it means for them. Um, I think two things. One, we can get caught up in what somebody else's journey or path or, you know, you can see someone that you consider super successful and beat yourself up that you're, you're not at that place or where they are. Um, And I think the other thing is too, like I've spoken a couple of times now at my um, son's college for the Year 10 Careers Day and we talk about, you know, the conversation is always about what they want to do. What are they going to do when they leave school? They never have the discussion until I bring it up because it's my thing now (laughs) is, you know, talking to them about how you want to feel. How do they want to feel in their life? And I don't think we actually take time to think about what that is and for each individual person success is whatever it is that they imagine for themselves so I know I've got you know a really close friend who's um a school teacher and that's all like that's what she wanted to be and make a difference to each individual child that she has that comes into her care she's successful she's happy she's in exactly where we need to be and I think if people can work out what that is for them because success looks different for everybody, but it's then working that out what it is and then unleashing it, I guess, for yourself. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's not being afraid. It's not um, – it's realising that it's okay to think as big or as small that you want to and, and being happy. I think we we lose, we lose the grip on being happy, um, you know, we kind of get told that all the time, but I don't think a lot of people actually think about what is it that actually makes them happy. And I know for myself that if I'm you know, feeling overwhelmed or if I've got a lot of things that I need to go through, that if, say, there's five you know, parts of my life and four might feel that they're not going well or if, you know, finding tough, if one's going well, all I have to do is actually not ignore that, actually go and spend more time in that part of it and then it all, it's like a domino effect. Everything else just starts to fall into place. Um, yeah, I don't know if I've answered your question, Janine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because what but, um, it is, it's almost like it's, there's an ownership piece there 
Um, yeah. What's working versus focusing on what's not working. I want to ask you the question that you pose at your son's school. How do you, Melinda, want to feel in your life? So I, I went years and years ago um, away for a five-day retreat and I really think there is so much value if somebody's feeling stuck, feeling overwhelmed um, or not sure what direction or what impact, you know, they want to make in their own lives or in the world, just taking that time out. So went on a five-day retreat and one of the things that they talked about um, was exactly that, not, not looking at what you're going to do and trying to set a five-year, ten-year plan, but looking at how you want to feel and they encouraged everybody to to work through a lot of um I guess different emotions and then walk away with one or two words that resonated with them and for me the two words was create and contribute um and I knew that if I was doing those two things in whatever way that it was then that was my brilliance that was me um being able to reach my full potential so um and, you know, I was probably early 20s when that happened, so nearly 20, oh, gosh, nearly 20 years ago. <laughs> um, and they still resonate with me. Like if I'm, whatever project I want to work in, whatever um, I want to do, if there's an ability to create something new or, or have those kind of juices flowing, but it's making an impact, it's making a contribution, um, I know I'm in my place. Yeah. And I, I don't think we... Even for students or, you know, young people, we kind of give them that opportunity to work out what that is. And when you kind of get stuck on what am I going to do, I never could have sat as a 17-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 22-year-old and said, what I'm going to do with my life is start a national charity for premature and sick babies um, and it's going to go global and it's going to have this impact. I, I, I couldn't have come up with that idea. Um but I could come up with the idea that I wanted to make an impact and be part of something bigger than myself, even if I didn't know what it was, just hung on to that feeling and let it show up for me. And then it did. And I just grabbed it. <laughs> and I'm so glad you did because look at the impact that you are making already. Um, with regards to, to the work that you do, if, if you had mm -hmm. a fairy godmother, and you could change one thing um, in the area of work that you are in, what would it be? Uh, I think being non-for-profit, the biggest challenge for us is funding. We don't get any government funding, even though we work within the health system. Um, so everything that we do is yeah. from the community. And, you know, there's some times where, we have all hands on deck on fund on you know on fundraising and making sure that's happening where if that was kind of taken care of and a given and had a magic wand for that, there'd be so much more that we could do in programs. Um, you know, obviously the care that we give is phenomenal now, but you know, there's just so much more that we could build on it and reach and, and more research and um, more family programs. So, yeah, I think non for profit will always talk about funding, unfortunately, <laughs> as a big challenge. Melinda, it's just been absolutely awesome to chat with you. My final question um, before I sort of sum up some of my key learnings from our conversation you know, we often do talk about what it is that we want to do. Um, my question for you is, who do you want to be remembered for? Oh, wow. 
Um, I think what we were talking about before in that I'd love to be remembered as a person who I guess lived my life on my terms, always aspired to be happy and to help others, um, but by doing that inspired other people to do that for themselves. Mm. Um, I'm not looking for like people to follow my journey, but if I can inspire them to create their own and just be passionate about their life and happy and, um, you know, I, I remember just a quick story. I remember sitting next to a mum at one of um, my son's games and, you know, we live suburbs apart, um, you know, both have three children, exactly like similar paths and, she just said, "You, what you've done and what you get to do is so much more than what I, you know, what I could ever dream of." And I remember walking away thinking, "Why? Why does she think that she couldn't? If we're exactly the same, why couldn't she think the same thing for herself?" Um, but the thing that she did say to me was, "You make me want to get up and do something." <laughs> so the fact that I could give her that energy. Um, yeah, I think that's what I want to be remembered for, that that if people know my story or cross paths with me, that um, it inspires them to, yeah, do whatever it is that they want to do for themselves and, and get excited about their life and know that even through adversity and I would in a heartbeat change the way that my boys came into the world. But, you know, I know now why, why they had to come in the way that they did. I think we conspired for this magic to happen and not um, – like let that change you for the better. Let that, let that. You know, they say when things go wrong, look at it as an opportunity. And and my gosh, it was a huge opportunity to make a difference. Oh, Melinda, I think that you are creating a phenomenal legacy, not only for those beautiful boys that you have, but for so many people. The impact that you. That little idea, that little seed you planted, that is now having on so many babies, on so many families, on so many people in the health profession, um, and on the work that you are continuing to do um, to change this industry in the health service for the betterment of the families and the babies is phenomenal. And you are an inspiration to, to so many people that I know. Some of the key things I, I took from our conversation that I think we can all learn, um, at the beginning you said all the little things layer up to be something bigger. And I think all of us can learn something from that, that at those moments where it feels like it's tough and you're not getting anywhere, that determination to just keep going and knowing that every little bit counts and it adds up to something is a great piece of insight. The second thing is, you know, you talked about the power of sharing a story, not only in terms of how it can help you, but also through the power of that story, the vulnerability and the honesty that you share, you're able to actually help others. And at the end of the day, you know, it's one of the things I'm really passionate about, about the transfer of humanity. And that's a classic example of how we can do that. And then, um, you know, there's no doubt that resilience is running through your blood in everything that you do. But I think the final piece which is what you are gifting to the students that you talk to. And I think, you know, the people that I work with in corporate and in, on, and in business, this piece about how do you want to feel 
is a deep question um, that I'm not sure many people have the answer to. And um, I'm encouraging our listeners to go away and think about that because I think it adds far more insight and gravitas to the work that they do every single day. Have you got any final words, Melinda? Um, no, I think you've summed that up really well. And I guess just, yeah, taking the time to realise what it means to you every day to wake up. You know, we only get one life and we only, um, we're not here for a very long time, but we can do so much with the time that we have. So, yeah, I guess just really working that out is, you know, do you feel every day how you thought you would, you would feel? And and like you said, every single moment is going to layer upon that. So trust your gut and just keep going. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, Melinda. I'm so glad that you planted that seed and you're doing the work that you're doing. <laughs> and um, yeah. absolutely fabulous to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to The Janine Garner Show. To follow her blog, purchase her books, or find out more, visit her website, janinegarner.com.au. Brilliant people, extraordinary results. <laughs>